All right, so at the age of 14 years of age, uh, Kiera Bell, that's, that's this uh, lady here, she began to identify as a boy. She wasn't interested in the stereotypical girly type of things. She enjoyed playing sports with boys, and she even felt attracted sexually to other girls. But even though she identified as a boy more and more each day as she matured uh, through her teenage years, her body began to look more and more like that of a woman. During this time in her life, Kira says that she was severely depressed. She was, she was anxious. She felt out of place, out of sorts. Worst of all, because she came from a broken home, she didn't feel like she had anybody in her life that was an adult that could give her good guidance and that could talk with her through these issues, these confusing uh, feelings and thoughts that she was dealing with. She had to, felt like she had to deal with it all on her own. She was desperate for a solution, and so she found her way to a clinic at the age of 14 that specialized in helping teens transition from one gender to another. She thought that if she could just become a male, then that would be kind of the silver bullet that would solve all of her problems. Everything could be resolved then. She would, she would be fine then. And so she came in convinced into this clinic. She was, she was desperate. She expressed her desire. I want to transition from being a, a woman to being a man, she expressed. And, and the clinic affirmed her choice. Eventually, she was given puberty blockers and testosterone treatments. Her voice began to deepen like that of a man's. She began to, to grow facial hair. Uh, she changed her name and at this point was, was considering herself a man, a, a boy or a man, yeah. At the age of 20 years old, she had her, her breast surgically removed so that her body could resemble better her, her face her, and her voice. But in spite of all these changes that Kira did, the desired relief evaded her. And, that, and that's true of, of many young people who even say, I'm, I'm at the point of suicide, and that's why they're encouraged and affirmed to, to transition. But, but the desired relief evaded her. And eventually she realized that the choice to transition was a big mistake. Looking back now, she wishes that when she had gone as a teenager who, who lacked the, the experience of life, who lacked the perspective, who lacked understanding, she wished that when she, was go, she had gone as a teenager to this clinic, that instead of affirming her decision, she wished that someone there would have challenged her thinking and helped her see that there was nothing wrong with her body as a woman. She was fine as a woman. Had this happened, had someone stood up to her, had someone challenged her thinking more, she believes that she would not have tried to transition to, to being a male. She, she believes that she would have seen the real problem, that it wasn't going to be solved by changing her gender. And as a result, she believes that had someone stood up to her, she would not have suffered the permanent damage to her body that she now lives with. Kira's case highlights a problem, the problem in a culture like ours that demands affirmation of gender choices. Demands it, no questions. Demands it. I mean, here's the deal. We are all capable of making decisions that hurt ourselves. 
I think an honest look at anyone's life will give plenty of evidence for that. We're all capable of this. And so our thinking, we, each one of us, our thinking needs to be challenged. If every choice that we make is just affirmed, oh yeah, go with that, we're setting people up to get really hurt. Thankfully, God loves us enough to challenge our thinking. And the Bible does just that. It's teaching challenges our natural thought processes, our natural ways of thinking, our natural ways of discovering our identity. And it gives us a clear picture of what our true identity looks like. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a sermon series now. It's called Finding Love, where we're exploring in the Bible what, the, what God has to say about sexuality, God's plan for sexuality. Although many think that the Bible teaching on sexuality is restrictive, and, and perhaps they don't even want to read what it has to say. Please don't tell me. I just want to do my thing. People might look at it as restrictive, that it denies practices that would lead to our happiness. The Bible reveals a God who is undeniably love. I mean, it defines God that way. We're familiar, many of us are familiar with that, that verse in 1 John 4, 8, where it says God is love. And there is so much evidence in the Bible to demonstrate God's love for us, how he will go to the farthest lengths to show our value and to love us, to redeem us, to bring us back. God pulls out all the stops. He goes through incredibly difficult, uncomfortable experiences for example, leaving heaven, becoming a human being, suffering as a human being, dying on a cross. He's willing to do all that because he loves us passionately, deeply. God is love. The Bible reveals that. And so how could love be found by going against what the Bible says? If the Bible truly speaks to us that God is love, how could going against God's plan be the answer to finding love. Today, we're looking at what the Bible's plan is for us and, and, and what the Bible has to say about our true identity. That's what we're focusing on today. How knowing who we are, this is so important, knowing who we are is essential to finding love. It, it shows us, it leads us how to find the love that our hearts desire. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. The title of the message is Your God-Given Identity. And before we get into it, I'd just like to pause one more time for prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, you know that I'm not qualified to speak on your behalf, but I thank you for your spirit that speaks to us. I pray, God, for open hearts and minds to receive the words of life that you have for us in this book, the Bible that you've given to us. May it challenge us. May we welcome that challenge. May we, may we receive what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're going to be looking at the first chapter, verses 26 and 27. You can go to your pew Bible. It's page 2 in your pew Bible. And while you're going there, I'd like to just observe that the popular thinking today states that identity is something that you choose. That's the popular thinking. You choose your identity. Not only do we get to choose who we want to be in life and what is true for us according to the popular thinking, but according to the popular thinking, we also get to choose our sexual identity as well. 
For many, this way of thinking sounds liberating. I get to choose these things. I get to choose my identity. I mean, no longer do you have to comply and follow along with the expectations of others. No longer do you have to follow other people's agendas for your life, whether that's coming from your culture or whether that's coming from the church or whether that's coming from your family. Your identity is up to you. And although the agendas of others can certainly be wrong, What is also certainly true is that your best thinking can be wrong. Kira Bell's story is one of many, many examples of our best thinking being wrong. In contrast to the popular thinking, the Bible offers a different approach. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that we did not choose who we are. Rather, that a God of love chose us. In six days, God chose to create this world, perfectly suited for the happiness of human beings. And when he was all done setting up this perfect, beautiful paradise, he created us. Verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1 tells us how he did it. When, then God said, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move all along the ground. Verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Bible makes it clear that our identity is not something that we choose. It is something that God gave to us. It's a gift from God. We were made in the image of God. The the Bible says here in verse verse, uh, 26 and 27 that we were made in God's image and in his likeness. And central to being made in the image and likeness of God is our gender. Notice what it says there in verse 27. Male and female, he created them in his likeness, in his image. God chose that Adam would be a male. He determined that. He chose that. He chose that Eve would then be a female. But this choice of gender did not end with Adam and Eve. Verses 26 and 27 that we just read said that God created man, or as the NIV puts it, mankind. Literally what what this means is that he created every man and every woman when he created Adam. In fact, the name Adam literally means humanity. It It means people. It means the human race. So when God created Adam, he created everyone in his image, male and female. In other words, in the beginning, God formed you, specifically you, and he specifically formed your sexuality intentionally. Now I realize that may not sound like good news to everyone. For the teenager, for example, that is questioning their sexual identity. This teaching can seem confusing. If they were born female, for example, and yet they are feeling same-sex attraction, which can be often very confusing for young people. 
Or perhaps they identify more with male behavior than they do with female behavior. They might wonder, did God make a mistake? Did this pronouncement that we read about over over the creation of humanity, is that no longer valid today? Am I really supposed to be the gender that I am born with? Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about same-sex attraction. So stay tuned for that. But for now, I'd like to point out that during the teenage years, confusing sexual desires are normal. It's, it's true. Researchers, there's, there's a lot of research that, that points to this, that going through the teenage years, there's, there's a preoccupation with sexuality, and these things are so strong that there can be some very confusing sexual desires that normally occur during this time. Research has demonstrated, for example, this is, this is one example, um, that teens who are not gay often experience homosexual thoughts and impulses. In fact, one study following teens over several years reported this, that only 11% of young men, follow this, only 11% of young men who reported having same-sex attraction were still reporting that attraction just one year later. In other words, 89% of the young men that were reporting, hey, I'm attracted to men, 89% of those individuals in a year or less were saying, I'm no longer attracted to men. There was a change that took place. And so this type of behavior, these types of confusing thoughts, I should say, these types of confusing impulses can, can be very normal among, especially in the teenage years. That being said, there are still people whose same-sex attraction, for example, remains. People whose questions about their sexual identity remains. It's not resolved. It doesn't go away. It continues to be there. And if that describes you, if that describes you, I just want to recognize how difficult that is. That is difficult. That is tough. That is not something that, that we believe that you are fabricating for novelty's sake. We understand, we, we, we accept, rather, I should say. We don't, I can't say that I understand. But I accept that this is a difficult, challenging time for people. Especially teens, when, when they want to be accepted and valued. If, they, if a teenager is dealing with confusion about their gender dysphoria, confusion about their, their sexual identity, this, this is very, very challenging. And as the pastor of this church, I want you to know that we care about your struggle. If that's what you're going through, we care about it. Actually, if you're struggling with anything, we care. But, but in this area, I want you to especially know that even though we believe in God, even though we believe the teachings of the Bible, this doesn't keep us from caring that you are struggling about your sexual identity if that's what you're going through. And I also want to say that we're not here to give pat, simple answers like, if you just prayed more, then you wouldn't be attracted to the same sex. We're not here to say that. We're not here to say that if you just had a, a, a better spiritual experience with God, then you wouldn't have questions about your identity. Because we are complex people. Yes, it matters that we pray. Yes, it matters that we have a relationship with God. But we are complex people. And I certainly do not understand all of the reasons why people have questions about their identity or why they might experience same-sex attraction. I don't understand all those reasons. I'm, I'm here to say that. But one thing I do know, that our identity especially our sexual identity, is not our responsibility to figure out. 
That's not on us. That's not on our shoulders because that has already been decided by God in the beginning. God created us in his image, male and female. It's been decided by God. When we, and, and, and so when we have questions about our identity, that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. When we have questions about our confusing impulses that we might be experiencing, same-sex attraction or whatever it might be, when we are in distress over these things, we can go to God. Why? Because we can, find, we can go to him and find answers to him because he knows us, he understands us better than we understand ourselves. Why? Because he made us. He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Genesis 1, verse 27, the word created is repeated three different times in this one verse. This emphasis is significant because whenever God creates, get this, it is always good. In the previous verses here in Genesis chapter 1, We find God creating day after day, and at the end of his creation, at each day, he steps back, so to speak, and he observes what he just got through creating. And every time God says, it is good. Read it. It's it's right there. There's a point that's made about this. The Bible is making a point that every time God creates, it is good. Notice that not once in the Bible does God say, after creating something, Oops. I, I'll, I'll do that better next time. We don't find that in the Bible. Not one time. Every time God creates, he does so perfectly. And this is especially true with people. In fact, when God goes to make us, he outdoes himself, really. He, he gives us an identity that no other creation here on this earth has. In, this, in the creation week, we don't see this identity given to any other creature. Verse 26 implies that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit came together and had a planning meeting. We don't see this happening with anything else. He doesn't do this before he creates horses or before he he creates dogs or whatever it might be. But when he comes, when he goes to create humanity, people, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together and they say, let us make mankind in our image. And God goes on to explain in verse 26 that being made in his image means that we were made to do something. We were made to rule. Notice this. We were made to rule over the fish, the birds, domestic and wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl along the ground. That is is what we were made to do. It's a specific list. And whenever the Bible gives us a specific list like this, I like to take note Because as we look at this specific list, there is a form of life that is conspicuously missing. God calls us to rule over all these things, but there's one form of life that he does not call us to rule over, and that is people. That's ourselves. Humanity is missing from this list. Look at it in verse 26. It's not there. God did not make us to rule over ourselves. He made us to live under his rulership. Now, I realize that some may hear that and say, that really sounds like something that confines my freedom. It's a violation, perhaps, even of of human freedom. Some might say that. But because God is our creator and because he is our ruler, he has given us an identity that surpasses anything that we could come up with for ourselves. 
This is why he does it. He doesn't do it to be controlling. He doesn't do it to be restrictive. He does it to bless us. Here's an illustration of that. Uh, last, last year, um, some of the skilled builders in our church inspired me to take on a, a project at home, a building project at my house that I'd been considering for some time. On, on the side of our house, we, we had this patch of dirt, and really nothing grows there. It's in the shade all the time, and just like, what are we going to do with this patch of dirt? And it is, turns out it is just the right size for a small chicken coop. And uh, graciously, I was allowed to borrow some of the tools that I needed to do the job. Um, but when it came to, to finding the materials for, for the wood to, to do the job, to, to build this chicken coop, I, I, I saw that the, the price of wood, maybe you've noticed this, the price of lumber was just going up. And, and it was really, I couldn't justify the expense of getting started. It was just too, too much. Then one day, while I was driving into my neighborhood, I noticed a pile of scrap wood. There was a new home that was being built, and right on the edge of the road, they, they were, clearly they were, they were getting rid of this wood. And they were building this home, and all of the scraps they were throwing into this pile, and there was all kinds, an assortment of dis- discarded pieces of wood. You know, there, were, there was particle board, and two-by-fours, and four-by-sixes, all kinds of different things kind of looked like that. And when I saw this pile of, of scrap wood, by the road as I was driving into the neighborhood one day, I looked at that pile of scrap wood and I had a vision of a chicken coop. <laughs> it wasn't a pile of scrap wood to me. I mean, maybe hundreds of people had driven past there and say, oh, it's a pile of scrap wood. When I saw that, I was like, a chicken coop. There it is. So after getting permission, yes, I did, uh, from the foreman, I asked them to repurpose that pile of scrap wood, gave, gave me permission. Uh, I went to work and many many hours later, with lots of good advice um, along the way and assistance and, and help from those far more knowledgeable than I about these things, that was the result. How do you get from that to that? I, I'm amazed. I'm like, wow, how did this happen? It's, it's really incredible. And, and it leads me to think that never would have happened had the scrap wood been left to itself? Had it been just left on the side of the road? I mean, it would have been thrown away or maybe burned in, in, in someone's backyard barbecue or whatever. It would have been done away with somehow. But because I saw what that could become and because I had support and there was a team of people, anyway, it all came together into something that is now a home for our chickens. It's great. But this would have, would have never happened if the wood was left to itself. When God identifies us as male and female created in his image, he is telling us what he is able to do with dirt. In God's hands, soil is transformed into human beings that resemble God. This is what he is able to do. We could never do this. Left to our, left, dirt left to itself would never become this or, or, or who you are. But this is what happens when God gets involved. In Genesis 1.26, the Bible uses two words to describe how we resemble God. It's really, really significant. Please go there. Uh, look, look what it says. 
It says that we were made in his image, and then it goes on to say, and in his likeness. In his image and in his likeness. These are are two significant biblical words. And they describe what happens when a man and a woman come together in marriage. And they enter into the creative work of God through procreation. This word image and likeness describes how children resemble their parents. We have an example of this in uh, in chapter 5 and verse 3. Here the Bible uses image and likeness, watch what it does, to describe how Adam's child Seth resembled him. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image. The exact same words that we find in verse 26 of chapter 1. And he named him Seth. Seth was his own person. Seth was not an exact duplicate of Adam. Seth was his own person. He had his own thoughts. He had his own ideas. Yet he resembled Adam. He resembled Adam in some really significant ways, in appearance, in ability, but most important in thinking. If you'll remember, one of Adam's children, Cain, Cain killed his brother Abel. But different from Cain, Seth was made in the image and likeness of his father because he was devoted to God just like his father. Seth's image and Seth's likeness were evidence of a special relationship between Seth and Adam because Seth received his identity from Adam. He would always be Adam's son. Nothing could change that. There was an inseparable connection. And Seth had a reminder of this every time he took stock of who his identity was. He saw evidence that he resembled his father and he would be forever connected to Adam. The fact that we have a God-given identity, that we were made in the image and likeness of God, means that we have a special relationship with God also. We can know God. We can have an experience with him because he made us like him. We have common ground. We're not exactly like him, but we resemble him enough to know him. He is our father, and as his children, made in his image and in his likeness, we have special privileges. Imagine for a moment that a powerful businessman is in an important meeting. They're talking about big things for the company. Perhaps he's, he's the, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and they're, they're in this important business meeting. Multi, millions of dollars are, are at stake in the decisions that they're, that they're making. And at this time, we can just imagine that perhaps many people would love to talk to this CEO. Perhaps there's people who want to do business with him, and so they're wanting to get a hold of him. They want to partner up with his business. Maybe there's people who are looking for him to give to their charity. Maybe there's people that want his advice on something. There's a lot of people that would love to talk to this man, but this CEO is in an important business meeting, and he has given clear instructions to his assistants that he is not to be interrupted. So they're in this important meeting. Now suppose that during this important meeting, this powerful CEO gets a call from his five-year-old daughter. She is the love of his life. And even though he cannot be interrupted, he stops and he talks to this five-year-old girl. Why? 
when there's a waiting list of people wanting to talk to him and he's saying, no, I don't have any time to talk to you, he will talk to his five-year-old daughter because she's the love of his life. That is the privilege that a child has with their parents. Look at what the Bible says about you. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Look at the connection that the Bible makes because God chose your identity. This is not a restriction. This is not something that is terrible. This is a sign that it is God's great love for us. It is because of his great love that he has chosen us to be his children, made in his image, made in his likeness, male and female. That is what we are, the Bible says. You don't have to strive for this. God made you that way. You have privilege with him because he is your father. You are his child. And this makes us very different from other people in our thinking. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. If you accept your God-given identity, you're going to stand out as unusual, as unknown. You're not going to fit in very well into this world. But you're going to know a love that your heart desires. God's act of identifying you as his child is evidence that you are loved. When you consider that God made you in his image and gave you a gender at birth, this confirms that you are the love of his life, his child. That's what parents do for their children. They, they give them their image, their likeness, their identity, their gender. This confirms that you are the love of God's life. And so you can go to him with whatever it is that concerns you, whatever it is that is burdening you, whatever it is that's distressing you, that's causing anxiety, that's, that's pushing you to the brink. You can go to him with whatever it is and know that he will take care of you because he is your father. He loves you. Instead of leaving our identity unspecified for us to figure out on our own or to choose for ourselves, God has given us an identity, an, an identity that surpasses anything that we could come up with on our own. Questions of identity are often tied to deep emotion. People who are questioning their sexual identity, people who have questions about who they are, this is often tied to distressful thoughts and feelings. It can be very difficult. And the, the desire to resolve these feelings can be immense. But whatever it is that we're dealing with when it comes to our identity, we can know that the burden of determining our identity does not rest upon us. It rests, it rests upon the one who made you. So this whole question of, do I have the right to choose my identity? Well, you have the power to choose. You can deny what God has done, but the reality is, is that it's already been chosen for you. It's not even up for decisions. You are a child of God, made in his image, male, female. That's been determined for you. Because you are the love of God's life, you can trust him with your struggles. You can trust him with your, with your questions and know that he will do what is best for you. Will it be easy? I can't promise that. But I know that he is faithful. I know that he can be trusted. So today I'd like to invite you to just accept your God-given identity with whatever it is, your, your career or, whatever, or your, how you see yourself or, or whether it has to do with your sexuality. Accept your God-given identity because this is where 
we find love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are in tune with each one of us. You feel the pains that we deal with. You, you know the anxieties that we wrestle with as human beings. And I want to pray for each one of us in our struggles of answering the question, who am I? I especially want to pray for those who, are, who have gender dysphoria or struggling with uh, their, their sexual identity. God, I, I pray that we all would find in you a loving Father, that we would accept our privilege to go to you and trust you to handle our situation, whatever it might be. Thank you so much for the amazing identity that you've given to us as your children, male and female. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.